Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast I'm here with daniel daniel for everyone out there listening can you please introduce yourself hi everyone so my name is daniel martins i'm an academic doctor at the institute of psychiatry psychology neuroscience uh, at king's college london and uh, i'm mostly doing currently doing research on the neuro neurobiological basis of mental illness and on development of new treatments so when we talk about mental illness, what types of mental illness are the ones that you really find? Because I mean, people have depression. Is there certain areas of the brain that you can see that are affected by depression? Is it like certain parts where you can take a scan and easily show like this part of the brain's not activated like a normal brain would be? Unfortunately, it's not that easy. So um, the the truth is that it's been only a few years since we really have um good techniques to study the brain uh, in life, basically, in vivo. Uh, and I think we are at the point now where we have started to scratch the surface of a very complex machinery that we don't understand exactly yet very well how it works uh, in health, uh, let alone uh, how it can go uh, horry during a mental illness. We, uh, we, we have started now to try to uh, understand a bit the mechanisms, the circuits, and how disruption of specific circuits can lead to um, certain uh, symptoms. But the truth is that the brain is a very complex organ. And one particular aspect that is very complex about the brain, very complicated, is the fact that the brain, even though it's inside the skull and it's um, uh, in our heads, it interacts with many things, including many things happening in our body, but also many things happening around us, with other people, with our context, with environmental factors, which are so important and modulate the brain in ways that are extremely complex and that we do not really understand uh, yet. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, it's it's a field that is kind of a bit in the early days, even though we have had neuroimaging techniques, for example, to study uh, patients in vivo for a few decades now, two to three decades. Um, but uh, we are still facing some challenges um, in our precise models of how dysfunction in the brain can actually to mental illness. I kind of like that you're humble in an aspect of like we're learning um, mostly a lot more now in the past couple of years compared to maybe as long as we've had technology to scan it because I think it's different from like an x-ray. An x-ray you can tell like okay this guy's missing like one portion of his brain like you can obviously tell this chunk is taken out but then when it comes to other things like environmental factors comes to emotional influence it comes to all these other things that makes a person uniquely different from another human being. I mean they can have the same weight brain but they can't have the same 
reactions, the same things of what we would call a personality, the same health challenges, maybe not genetic factors, but other factors when it comes to brain disease. I mean, th that is a genetic factor, but I mean, the propensity could be from so many other influences, what I would say multifactorial, which just makes it super interesting because I start wondering like what makes people like tick, what makes people like happy, what makes people really interested in something. I know they always talk about like there's the left side of your brain and the right side, there's the creative, and then there's the more mathematical type thing. I'm like, I mean, are they as distinct as that? Because then if we start boiling it down into other aspects of like, what makes someone a really good painter? Is it their environmental influence? Or is it just the factor that they have some type of absorbed skill trait that's more than any other person that could have? Well, or eventually even maybe a bit of both. Um, so the, the thing is like, you know, especially in neuroscience, there's a, there's a lot of myth. And this classical distinction between the right and left brain is something that has been kind of hanging around for, for a few years now. And that we, uh, right now, we know that it's not as simple as that. Um, th there's something very interesting in what you said that I think it's very important, uh, especially in the context of mental illness and how we kind of trying to get a, um, around to understand a bit better what potential mechanisms might lead to these sort of disorders. It's very important to, 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 to note a few, a few facts here. The first fact is that, as you said, a lot of these uh, traits, let's say even simple behavioral traits, uh, not necessarily talking about uh, uh, mental illness, they are uh, really uh, multifactory. So you have a component of genetic which can be stronger or it can be weaker. In the case, for example, of mental illness, to follow a bit the, the rational conversation, uh, we know that, for example, in certain disorders, if you look at how frequent these disorders are uh, in identical twins as compared, for example, to um, what we typically call false twins, um, we do have signs that a lot of these disorders have a component, a genetic component, which we call irritability, which means that the genes probably explain uh, uh, to some extent, um, the, the, the risk for, for the disease. The problem with the genetics, for example, is that these traits are so complex, which uh, basically entails that sometimes measuring them is not easy. And they are very unlikely to be uh, encoded by one single gene. And this is typically what in behavioral genetics people have been uh, finding. It's very difficult to really pinpoint a gene for creativity, a gene for intelligence, a gene for schizophrenia, or a gene for depression. What we kind of have been trying to realize over the years is that um, there's a number of genes that are probably related and that confer a risk or that confer some sort of advantages in, sp in specific traits. But these genes, um, each individual gene only contributes a very small percentage of this risk, which means that uh, in total, genes probably contribute a substantial part or an important part, but each individual gene and uh, uh, getting to the bottom of which genes actually confer this risk is really difficult because it should, each gene only confers a very small percentage of the risk. That's, that's the first part about, about, about the genetics. Well, yes, with um, the, the genetics part, that's more predictive, right? If you're able to predict a certain gene or something that has propensity to cause a certain mental health issue. Because I think with schizophrenia, isn't that just certain parts of the brain aren't or part, parts of the neuron are not lighting up like they're supposed to be. And that's why electroconvulsive therapy has been the only really effective treatment for schizophrenia. 
Well, it's not only really the, uh, the only effective uh, treatment. There's uh, other uh, pharmacological treatments and also- There's a pill, but it's not therapies. a cure. No, uh, I mean, in general, psychiatric disorders, um, it, it's difficult to talk about the cure. But again, we need to open here uh, a bit of a, a note that uh, we are talking about patients that can be very different from each other. A patient with schizophrenia or with psychosis uh, can be quite different from a patient with depression, which can be very different from a patient with an eating disorders or will be very different from a patient with a personality disorder. So we're talking about patients that are very different from each other, which might share some features, might share some symptoms, but may also be, um, but they, they are also different uh, in, in many terms. So, what you were talking about, the, the function of the brain is, is interesting uh, because it's kind of a bit of an idea and of a bit of a preconception that we have that whatever ha happens in the brain is very mystical. It's like uh, the, the whatever in the, it happens in the brain is kind of sacred. Uh, but the truth is that the brain, as many other organs, is made of cells. And it's made of cells that connect to each other and that have many properties in terms of uh, processing of information, but the characteristics of these cells, um, they are uh, encoded in our genes as for many other uh, cells of our bodies. Which kind of brings us to the question of whether, uh, you know, this thing of separation, kind of almost separation, uh, what is physical and what is almost ethereal when it comes to uh, mental illness is something that, you know, the last decades of research kind of been uh, showing that uh, probably makes less and less sense uh, because a lot of the things that we used to think as almost uh, uh, mystical in the past from the behavioral point of view, now we know that they have a physical substrate. And that physical substrate is the brain. And the simple fact that when you look, for example, um, to a scan of someone with ADHD, with schizophrenia, and you can't really uh, pinpoint any major uh, structural abnormalities, does not really mean that their brains uh, work uh, exactly in the same way. So if I would have to summarize uh, probably what was the, the, the biggest contribution of neuroscience uh, to psychiatry and to psychological um, uh, theories in general, is this capacity and this ability to bring a physical substrate to a lot of the things that we used to think in the past as simply happening at a plane that is almost, uh, you know, the plane of the mind and this kind of this, this dichotomy between what's physical and what is not physical. Well, what do you think would be, a, uh, in your opinion, I would say, or your perspective would be a better aspect to go with neuroscience? Do you think it would be more predictive measures to be able to predict if someone's going to have a certain mental health issue? I mean, it just depends, I guess, what we call mental health. Because um, to me, I think depression, it's a serious mental health issue, but it's not like a mental disorder, much like ADHD or much like schizophrenia, because it, it to me, it's like an add on because I got an article sent to me after speaking with someone uh, who focuses in ADHD, 65% of people with ADHD suffer from severe depression issues and suicidal tendencies. So you get into this aspect of like, well, then that's an add on to the original first basis, which is ADHD. Now I don't compare my ADHD to schizophrenia. I think that's a way worse. That's like a stage five, but then we get 
different levels and different tiers. And I think with the more common that depression is now becoming with so many other factors out there, I think that more common aspect makes it less severe in certain cases, or at least certain stigmatized areas. Before you talked about depression, you talked about, I, I'm not feeling so good today. Someone will tell you to suck it up and move on with your day. Now you say something and people actually look to you like, Hey, maybe you need to talk to someone. Maybe you need to do this. And then we can see it per person affect them differently. Some people get depression off of just contemplating their own existence. I mean, that's an environmental factor. If you start analyzing the things around you and you start realizing the places that you are necessarily in right now might seem like it's distorted in your brain that you might like for me, for instance, if I examine my life or something, I go, damn, I should be like, I could be get like, I, I need to do movie deals. I need to like, cause I see Tom Holland and he's the same fucking age as me. So I'm like, well, I mean, you know, you get into these aspects where you start comparison, like comparison are probably the biggest deceit of evil, but everyone's got doubts. It's just, I feel like there's certain moments in your life or certain times in it as well too, that your brain somehow distorts the reality that you're in and the way that you've been examining your life all up until that point has been completely different, but now you've somehow gotten critical. I think every single person knows the feeling of like, they're, they're way out of school. They've been out of school 15 years, but they wake up in the middle of the night, like, oh my God, I got a homework assignment due. No, you don't. Why is your brain doing that to you? It doesn't know. I don't know. I mean, but that's what's mystical about it. It's like, it's so interesting because whenever the topic of mental health gets up, people either feel like they want to apply their invoice to it or apply their thoughts to it, but also people who don't have it think that it'll never hit them. And I go, well, it could hit you now and it can hit you when you're 90 years old. The fact that if you make life without suffering from some type of depression, that's a that's a rare miracle type thing, because we don't really know what it causes. There's so many multifactorial things that lead into that. Now, I just ranted, but. It's just interesting to me because I, I talk to people who run like male wellness clinics and all these other types of things. You start getting into this aspect of like, holy crap, like everyone's perceiving like we all know that me and you right now are in this Zoom call. But at the same time, we're having thoughts going in our head. We're having all these different things that are going on under the skin that we can't see. And it's so complex and so fascinating that it does link into this like. I wouldn't say religious aspect, but ethereal sense where it's somehow like unexplainable, but somehow uncharted territory, even though it's the closest thing to us. Like that's, that's to me is freaking fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of brought a few points that are very important here for the conversation. The, the one important point that you started with is that, you know, when we talk about mental illness, we need to uh, have in mind that a lot of these labels that we put to people in terms of diagnosis, uh, they are to an extent a bit conventions that are useful for us doctors uh, uh, from a clinical point of view so that we kind of can guide a bit better people on what kind of uh, treatment options they might have for the specific challenges that they are facing. But the truth is that um, there's a lot of comorbidity between uh, a lot of these uh, disorders. For example, if someone has schizophrenia, this does not mean that uh, uh, in a certain period of our life they cannot have depression. The same way that, for example, it's not impossible for some for a patient with a very severe depression to show what we call psychotic features, which typically we attribute to other sort of uh, mental conditions such as uh, schizophrenia. So, which kind of makes me uh, uh, get back to the point of, to, of the importance of neuroscience, because this is something that we still did not manage to achieve well, which is to try to understand more than thinking about 
the features that people show from a behavioral point of view, from a thought point of view, can we really take all of these people that face challenges with mental health, uh, uh, with mental health and really categorize them from a biological point of view? Is the brain of someone with depression very different from someone with uh, psychosis? Or is the brain of someone with depression very different from someone with autism? And this is something that I really think that we start to uh, probably try to think a bit more in the future. And there has been some initiatives on this, uh, on, this, um, on this topic, something that we call kind of research domain criteria approach, which kind of tries to make us forget a bit about the labels, about the diagnosis and focus more on the symptoms. Okay, so for example, thinking about negative affect, positive affect, these sort of things, and kind of try to uh, understand a bit better. First of all, what's the neurobiology behind these sort of constructs? Second of all, uh, how do these constructs really go and move across the, across the board uh, in, in terms of diagnosis? Because, you know, from our uh, experience uh, in working with these patients, we know that there's a, a lot of features that are common. What we cannot really tell very well is whether the mechanisms that lead to depression in someone that is schizophrenia are the same that, for example, lead to depression in someone that just had a reactive depression. So this is really a, a very important point, and I think it's very important to educate people that when we put a label, it's, it's indeed a very big responsibility from a clinical point of view, but being uh, having a level of, for example, major depressive disorder does not necessarily mean that you know you will only have uh, challenges related to mood. That's the first thing. The second thing that I would like to comment on in regards to what you just said, it's really on this idea of stigma. We still have a lot of stigma in relation to people with mental illness. And part of this stigma is because we do not understand uh, yet these disorders, disorders very well. And because we kind of have thought for many years that all of these disorders were a bit mystical in, in the beginning of the ages, people even attributed a lot of these manifestations like schizophrenia to spirits or to something that is even a bit magical. Um, I think people struggle to uh, kind of uh, accept mental illness in the same way that would accept, for example, uh, cancer or an infection or cardiovascular disease. For example, what you were saying, like, no one would even dare to say to, 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 say to someone with cancer, to say, like, you know, get over it. Uh, you have, you've got cancer, just, you've just got to, to move on with your life. It's all in your head, bro. It's all in your head. Uh, and, and, and this is a notion that I think, um, that our understanding of uh, mechanisms will probably help to change a bit this view and this culture. But I would say that it's it's still very clear to me. I I I don't know the the, the reality in the US very, very well, but I can I can assure you that in Europe we still have a lot of work to do. It's not uncommon, for example, even for patients with depression that refuse to go to a psychiatrist and prefer, for example, to go to a neurologist. Um, simply because they don't want to go to the psychiatrist. Going to the psychiatrist implies that you are mad, you uh, are in a situation that is not really well viewed uh, by the society. And I think people with mental illness still face a lot of challenges 
because of this this pressure, you know, because of this stigma. And this is something that we we really need to do a lot of work to educate people uh, in that direction. Um, because first of all, a lot of people delay looking for help uh, because of this stigma and uh, probably live their lives with less quality that they what uh, they could live uh, simply because just they just try to, to you know to get over the the, the, face, the, the problems they are facing uh, without looking for for specialized help which is really a shame because even though people might think that you know a lot of these diseases are not curable etc etc et there's a lot of things we can do to uh, manage symptoms improve the quality of life uh, of people and second of all, who has the unfortunate, um, you know, destiny of having to live with a label, such as, for example, schizophrenia, will always face some sort of suspicious and kind of these turned eyes of people looking at them. Um, well, that's the disease in general. That's what it makes you do is think that people are watching you and doing all these crazy things. I just think when we talk about like the route of like, and now I'm not an alternative medicine guy, but I've talked to a lot of people who do focus on like that type of alternative medicine. I think pills work. I just think we have a misdiagnosis problem as well too. I think as soon as someone says like, I'm not feeling too good today, or I'm having this type of thing, a doctor is more than happy to write off a prescription, especially in the U S I mean, over a hundred thousand people from the ages of 19 to 49 died last year of opioid addiction. Like I just, I look at it. Like, I think we need with the more commonality that depression is coming i hope people can start to realize like the better education that needs to come with that and i think that doesn't mean you have a brain disorder i think that just means your life might be kind of crap right now it doesn't mean it's not going to get better now the thing with psychology or psych psychiatry psychiatry is just stigmatized because there's a kind of a darker history that goes behind it but the most interesting part about it is if you can take it from a psychiatry aspect and bring it into a psychology aspect look how many people will say i gotta go talk to my therapist it doesn't mean that person's nuts it just means that person needs to talk to someone that's an environmental problem we are evolving very fast with technology and i think with that we have to realize that there is a massive amount of depression that is coming with that now i think technology like virtual reality and all these things that i've talked to people about who talk about they can use it for therapy use it for all the, i think that's true but i also think that it's not educated to people for them to do that a lot of it's scrolling on social media and you know you're planning a whole trip and next thing you know you can't go because you know you see you spend too much money on amazon i have no clue but there's these small factors where we get distracted we're just we're we get a lot of information and sometimes that information can be over consuming and the issue with that is kids my age and kids younger will go into a doctor's office and talk about like i'm just not feeling happy anymore i'm just not doing this and the doctor go I'm going to prescribe you some Lexapro. I'm going to prescribe you some this. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Maybe like they just have something going on in their life that isn't the best. And then a psychologist can figure that out. A psychologist can be, you just need to talk to someone. But when people go to like a doctor, they just go to the general practitioner who prescribes them this. And I think with a better understanding of how our minds work, like I think with classifications of mental health issues. Like I had a friend, um, his mom committed suicide. She was schizophrenic. I had no freaking clue, but she took a pill and kept it under for so long. She was fine. And then one day it wasn't. And then that happened. I mean, there's serious, severe things where 
if you are suffering from something, not just schizophrenia, but depression, severe depression, and it's been lasting months, then yeah, you need to go like talk to someone and you need to make sure that you're not going to hurt yourself. But a lot of people like they lose $500 gambling and they're like, oh, and they think that they have depression. I have friends that went to a doctor and got prescribed something. And they're like, I'm not taking this. I just lost money at a gambling thing. Like that's, I think with a crucial part of understanding more about this aspect, you'll be able to solve that giant issue. Cause I think that also distorts the data that you're probably receiving on so many factors when it comes to mental health. Yeah. I think you kind of raise uh, some points here that uh, I would also like to demystify a bit here, which is like, the first point is this idea that if you go to a doctor complaining that you are sad, you are going to receive a diagnosis of depression. It, it, it doesn't work that, uh, that that way, really. I've done so, it with uh, two different doctors in the US, so I'm just saying. I mean, I cannot, of course, I cannot comment reality on the US because, and uh, there's also a lot of, uh, you know, one thing is seeing someone uh, which is specialized uh, in this area and that will probably have uh, a different view on things. But the truth is that, you know, even though uh, we don't have any diagnostic tests to depression, for example, it's not like I can use my stethoscope, put my stethoscope on your brain and see what it, the sounds are like to kind of help me make a diagnosis of depression. I cannot ask for a blood test but this does not necessarily mean that the type of uh, uh, diagnosis we make are not necessarily based on criteria. Well, the, the, uh, do, do, the important you, thing here, hold on, though, uh, real quick to, uh, to a point to what you just said. In the UK, do they not ask you, do they not give you like a six question thing on a scale of one to 10? How are you feeling today on a scale of one to 10? Have you thought about hurting yourself on a scale of one to 10? Have you ever tried to hurt yourself on a scale of one to 10? How bad is your alcohol consumption on a scale? They don't ask you those? So those questions, they are part of the, those questions that you are mentioning, they are part of kind of self-report objective uh, questionnaires for assessing depressive symptoms. And of course, yes, we do use them as a, as a tool of routine, but this does not necessarily mean that you would uh, definitely, or um, in a very standard and uh, straightforward way, make a diagnosis of depression simply because someone, uh, you know, will score this or that value. There, there, there's kind of this uh, holistic uh, assessment of mental state that uh, we should make in order to make a good diagnosis of depression. And that also, uh, you know, implies sometimes understanding what's the impact that the, these sort of uh, uh, feelings uh, might have on the way that people are interacting with others, uh, performing at work, uh, living their lives. Uh, so, you know, there's a reason why we still don't have computers uh, replacing doctors. And that reason is because there's a, a very important human component in the way we do medicine. We used to say, we normally we say that medicine is not only a science, it's a scientific art because it's definitely based on science. It's most of the times we practice medicine based on what we call evidence based on uh, research. Uh, but at the same time, there's a very important human component, which is related to the way and to the heart of doing medicine that is very important to uh, the way we interact with patients and, and that can influence massively the way uh, that things go after you have seen a patient for the first time. But this to say that, yes, we are still lacking 
the sort of objective tools that we would like to have in order to make diagnosis. But this does not necessarily mean that if someone comes to, uh, to me saying that, oh, I'm just really sad, uh, you know, that you are not going to try to understand exactly what's the context of what's happening here. Things, for example, that how long have you been sad? How has this been impacting in your life? Uh, so there, there's a lot of features, a lot of characteristics that uh, of these episodes that we try to understand in order to make a proper diagnosis of depression. So because, you know, feeling sad, it's something that is part of life, is just part of, of our uh, emotional repertoire. Uh, what we need to try to understand is whether these persistent feelings of sadness might actually been, um, be dysfunctional to the way that the person is working. I got to come to the UK because in the US, it's completely different. If I would have answered that criteria with a s above six on anything, they immediately would say, I'm going to prescribe you Lexico. I'm going to prescribe you Motrin. I'm going to prescribe you something like that. And that's with two different doctors that I've went to. I don't take any of that stuff because I don't even really take Tylenol. But it's interesting because it's two different perspectives based on two different countries. And I think that is a big issue that's over here as well, too, is that there isn't really this individual time and care that's not really put in with doctors over here. And I'm not dismissing the medical industry at all. I just think that they have a long like patient load and they only have a certain amount of time that they got to cram in, which kind of sucks because I think you need more individualized care when it comes to that aspect of things. And I think the pandemic kind of threw a monkey wrench in it because now we have more of a telehealth type idea that this is the way we can do medical things. Now, if it's a serious thing, like you got a, a lump on the side of your head that's growing like four sizes bigger than your own head, then yeah, the doctor's probably going to tell you to come in. But we're right now we're passing a lot with telehealth. And I don't think that's really an effective way as well, too, because we have a large area right now of trying to understand mental health and at the same time trying to find a, a fix for it. And I'm just like, I, it, would it be more about raising the situation? Like, do, like for me, my depression, I don't really know when it's going to happen. I don't know. You just get these bad days where it's like life kind of sucks. But it's not like something like I can just tell you like, oh, my brain, it's about to click on to like depression. Like I know with certain other things you can tell like, okay, there's a feeling like you're getting in the back of your head brain fog, for instance, where I found your article, that type of thing is like an area of my back of my head. Exactly. I could pinpoint it to this back spot right here. Whenever I get into an argument, it starts to flare up. It's, it, it causes sometimes a migraine, but that area I could pinpoint it to a T that okay, I have brain fog right now because I can't think clearly. I'm just, my thoughts aren't there. And then that brings in a whole area of depression and the number of people that have brain fog, not even just from COVID, but from other things as well too. The depression numbers rise up because now they feel like they're less than what they were before. And necessarily, if you didn't really like what was going on in your life before, you're going to feel even worse when there's something else that's hindering it. Like you're not normal anymore and it's like what's normal but we don't ever ask ourselves these questions i feel like if you ask yourself maybe 10 questions to assess your state of being you'll probably be able to answer it yourself you'll probably be able to not only answer your own questions but be able to figure out like okay i, I feel better now yeah uh, let, let let me just pick a few points of what you said, because I think you raise a few things here that are very important. I can't tell if I'm to... saying good things or bad things. The way you say it's no, like I I'm think, picking. I mean, you are raising some points, but, uh, you know, my, I think my role here during this conversation is also try to bring a bit uh, uh, a more uh, a perspective from an insider of, of the reality here. The, the I, I think we doctors are kind of blamed with this 
uh, idea that if someone comes to us complaining, for example, let's say low mood, we are going to straight away prescribe a drug. That's not necessarily, uh, you know, always the case, and that's not necessarily good practice because these decisions of whether what sort of treatment approach we are going to take with a patient is normally a shared decision. And we know that, for example, in the case of depression, uh, especially if we are talking about a moderate depression, light depression, uh, the brief psychological therapies, they seem to be sometimes as if, as efficient uh, in reducing your um, depressive symptoms as, for example, a drug. Now, let's imagine that, for example, you as a patient, you tell me, it's like, you know, but I don't have money, I don't have an insurance to actually attend all of these uh, psychological therapy sessions. There's a lot of straining on the resources as well in the health systems. You cannot really get it for free. It's not easy to find a psychologist or someone that is trained to actually you know, run these sessions with you. Uh, so in my place, what would you do? What, what should I tell you? Should I tell you to go home and not do anything? Even if you are struggling and I know that there's uh, additional and other options which uh, might help you to overcome that problem. And th th those sort of decisions, it's is these sort of decisions that a lot of the times we have to make, you know, if someone tells me, you know, I know that I would take, uh, I could take brief psychological, um, uh, brief psychological intervention to reduce my symptoms, but it's not something that I'm really willing to do. I would prefer to, to, to do medication. What should I do? To, what should I say to this patient? Uh, you know, sh should I force people to actually engage in psychotherapy before I um, provide the, the opportunity to try pharmacological treatment? So it, it's a bit of this balance and a lot of circumstances that we really have to consider. And I think the, in general, the public, uh, when it comes to this, uh, to, to this topic of use of medication in mental illness, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that we don't uh, perhaps see sometimes a bit of uh, a problem with over prescriptions, uh, errors in prescription, which come from the fact that a lot of these patients are not really followed up by uh, specialized services and people that uh, have uh, a good training in uh, mental health. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's a reality that it's way more complicated and way more nuanced than what people might think uh, in the general community. Just wanted to make this uh, to, to make this point because I think it's really important to kind of clarify that um, if you go to a psychiatrist, it's not for sure that you are going to come out um, with, with a drug. And the, the, one very funny thing is that, but this does not happen only I wasn't with even a, talking about a psychiatrist. I was just talking about a general doctor that offers Lexapro or Motrin like it's nothing. And they'll prescribe you for harder things when it goes over. See, the thing is, at least in the States, if you ask for, I want this drug to handle with my depression, I guarantee you, you're not going to get it. And if we talk about like therapy services, and charges free insurance for healthcare, you get free therapy. There are plenty of places that'll just talk to you. Now, the area where it comes to prescribing things, like I said before, they're just a lot of like general doctors that prescribe those things are just trying to fix the issue. I'm not crapping on the medical industry. But if you look at the statistics of opioid overdose in the States, there's evidence to back that. Now, I don't think it's the doctor's fault. I just think that they have a large patient load, like I said before. Now, 
more than likely, you're going to have a doctor that is probably just going to talk to you and trying to figure out what's going on in your life. But the criteria aspects of what meets a certain drug that they can prescribe you is a lot of the times the question linked in with the questions that are asked in a service, which is that one to 10 scale. And if someone doesn't really understand that in that moment, that moment that they need help, which is why they're at a doctor, more than likely than not, they're going to answer above an eight on most of those questions, which makes the doctor start to think that this is serious and you need some help right now to help you out of this position when they could just walk outside, find a $20 bill on the ground and their whole life could be better. Like, that's the thing is like, I think where the whole topic of mental health and all these issues start coming in is that it's like seen as like, it's this severe, it's going to cause you to do this. And people don't really understand the full scope of what that is. So they feel like they need help in this moment when really their next day is going to be better. Half the time I take a nap, it all goes away. Like I feel great after a nap. I mean, that's the thing with sleep as well, too. The low lack of sleep causing depression issues that are rising up as well, too. That's why I say it's multifactorial, I'm not blaming doctors on anything. If you've listened to like the other thousand episodes, I've always covered the doctor's ass. What I think it is, is that society is set on this pace of like, get you on the best course of action as fast as possible, get you back out and doing whatever you want. And necessarily, that's why I bring back the individual care. I think we need to have a more respect or more kind of understanding of what that thing is going through. That doesn't mean every single doctor is going to be able to sit down with a patient for an hour. I don't expect that at all, but I think like our criteria needs to advance, but I only see the way that that criteria advances if we can better understand it. And that's only been happening in the past five, 10 years. We've been really trying to understand depression a lot more. And I think even in today's time, it's, you're seeing trending articles about it all the time. People really want to know like what stops someone from these horrible things that are happening, especially over here in the States, which I think that brings more focus onto your field as well, too. Is it a site? Is it a, something in the brain that's not working properly? Is it something like this? Could you tell? I mean, it might just be something that's going on in their life. I mean, did they lose their home? Did they lose their car? I mean, it could be something like that. But the way that we're trying to understand it is when we say mental health, people immediately think the brain. They think like is something inside that's not firing correctly. And it's like, that's necessarily not always the case. No, especially, uh, you know, it's not always the case uh, uh, because as you were saying, you're talking about disorders that have a very important multifactorial component. Uh, but this does not necessarily mean that, for example, let's talk, think about, for example, stress, the way we deal with stress. Stress is, for example, a very important uh, factor in, uh, uh, in uh, increasing the risk for, for uh, an episode of depression. But not all of us uh, react to stress the same way and not all of us facing this, exactly the same challenge will develop a depression because we different have, have different resilience uh, mechanisms that are uh, in place and that kind of help us to, to cope with the stress and reduce the potential uh, harmful effect that it ha might have for our mental health. I think our work here is really to try to understand a bit better, you know, create a, a more precise and more me mechanist models of how can someone that happens in your life, let's think, for example, continuous stressor, you are in a job that is very stressful, where you work very long hours, people are not really nice, eventually they bully you, they harass you. Uh, how can this sort of uh, uh, environmental uh, events, uh, which are naturally stressors, can uh, uh, lead to depression? And that's the sort of the, the, the path that we have been trying to, to do. Uh, of course, you know, no one, even for someone 
as me, which does a lot of research in, uh, on the brain and on neurobiology, ignores the importance of these uh, contextual and environmental factors. What we kind of want to try to understand is that how can we put the puzzles of all of this piece together? Because at the end of the day, yes, the person is feeling sad because something wrong happened uh, in their lives. But what really, what is really puzzling for us, what's really interesting to us is how can this something bad that happened in their environment actually lead to all of this constellation of symptoms that we see and that from one moment to the other just disrupts the way that people interact with, the, with others and live their lives. I think that's really, really the, the, the point. The pandemic itself kind of brought us a lot of opportunities to kind of, uh, you know, explore a bit uh, uh, better a lot of these things. Uh, and going to the paper that you were mentioning, which was a paper that was actually led where I'm a co-author, was actually led by people at Harvard Medical School, uh, at Marco, Marcus Logic Group, and where kind of people kind of, our colleagues were interested in kind of trying to understand, for, for example, what this experience of, of, of the pandemic itself uh, as a, a huge and an extreme uh, example of, of a constellation of stressors can, can look like and the impact it might have. And what could it entail from, uh, from, uh, from the brain point of view? And I think this sort of opportunity was, was pretty unique and underscored very, very well uh, the importance of the, the, of the contextual factors, uh, societal factors, uh, interactions with others, the practice of exercise, um, and many other things our, our lifestyle uh, do have um, for, for the functioning of our, of our brains. Would it be easier just to tell if it was temporary or if it was permanent? I think that's where you have a lot of people like myself that are worried about brain fog is that we don't really understand it yet. And it's not kind of like your environmental factors. Like for instance, weather, it's cloudy as hell right now. And it's been cloudy most of the week. We had one sunny day. A lot of people talk about, man, just weather just makes me want to sit inside and do nothing. It's crappy for my mood. That's temporary because the weather's going to change. But when you talk about brain fog and you talk about this area where people aren't feeling like themselves anymore and feeling like this is going to be like, I thought I did everything right. And you're telling me that I have this long lasting thing. What is it? An infection of the brain? I mean, then an article comes out saying that since you can't smell that it's actually partial brain damage. And you're like, what? And you're getting into this area where people just want to know, am I going to go back to where it was before? Or is this something I'm going to have to live with? Is this what they call the new normal? And I think if we're able to classify if it's temporary or if it's permanent, there's going to be treatments for it down the road. I, I'm not saying that there's not going to be, but it's about understanding it. And right now, people are scared. And when people are scared, that's when they take drastic action. Take a person with depression that ends up taking their own life. I had a friend do it two years ago, said he was going to shoot himself, and he did. Now, was his life crap? I don't know, because he didn't talk to people. But could the next day, if he wouldn't have done that, his life been completely different? A hundred percent. But it's the way that we handle things in stressful situations. I think stress is a big factor into depression as well, too, if you're not handling it correctly. We said, well, you said stress, people handle it differently. Some people isolate. Some people get really angry and break stuff. 
Some people yell at other people. We all handle it in a little bit of a different way and a different method. And some of those methods can actually lead to even more depression, such as isolation, not talking to anybody about your stress doesn't cause the stress to go away. You might feel better 25 or 35 minutes later when you're over or you forget about the problem, move on to the next thing. But then if you sleep, you just sleep on the problem. And this is like, it, it, it's just this whole, like, it's so broad, this topic, because there's, especially when you talk about, like, if we bring it back to brain fog, that's something where I think a lot more people are experiencing it, even if they haven't gotten COVID or if they have gotten COVID. And the only things that we can see that were, I guess, initially headed towards first was the no smell thing. I think everyone knew about the no smell thing, but now brain fog's becoming more known, which hopefully we're going to get some resources in it, which is beneficial to people who actually have a severe like genetic disorder where they do experience brain fog. Now we're going to get two birds with one stone in a sense, you're going to have more people trying to figure out what brain fog is, which in turn, if they find a treatment, they can help the people that are suffering it from a genetic thing. But people who are having it right now who might be going through like a really, I would say a turmoil in their life and feeling like this is never going to end because it's been a couple of months and they don't see a, a, any talks or major news announcements about it. They feel like they have to do something drastic. And that's just the way that we learn to solve problems, sadly, or an instinctual thing, I guess, about us that we've acts very, very severe over some problems sometimes. And that is not necessarily the best choice. I mean, that's just my thoughts on that. But I think, you know, it makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, I think right now we are still uh, lacking answers. And uh, uh, actually, this 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 um, post-COVID-19 syndrome is something that really interested me uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and some it's an area where I've actually started to do a lot of research uh, more recently. Um, mostly because, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that people are uh, raising now with post-COVID-19, for example, this thing of the, the, the brain fog, which, you know, if we kind of try to op objectify a bit more and be a bit more precise in defining what what is the brain fog, it's kind of this more colloquial term that people um, use to describe their uh, issues and their problems with the capacity of thinking and processing. A lot of the times related to, for example, problems with sustained attention, with the speed of thinking and etc which we kind of, uh, you know, have already observed for a lot of years uh, in many other patients and thinking, for example, patients with neurological disorders such as MS, where I also did some research, uh, people with park, patients with Parkinson's struggle quite often with fatigue and uh, patients with cancer. And in very curious case, you have people actually where this uh, fatigue is actually their primary complaint, uh, such as in people with MECSF, myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, so, you know, this thing of the fatigue, yes, it did, the, the post-COVID syndrome did raise a lot of our awareness and our attention to uh, the importance of studying and understanding a bit better um, fatigue as uh, as an entity, which is something that I think it's going to be extremely positive because, first of all, it's a medical symptom that, uh, you know, we kind of tend to disregard a lot. People also do not pay a lot of attention to it. It's just like, oh, yes, I've been, been tired and it's kind of just crack on and just eat some soup or something. It. That's usually what they say is eat some soup. And uh, but but the truth is that there's there's still a lot of work and there's still a lot of questions, especially when it comes to 
to post-COVID syndrome. And uh, note here that I, I do not really like to use the word long COVID here because I think it's a bit confusing. So, you know, long COVID kind of encompasses two very different things. And the first thing is what we called like the ongoing symptoms that happen after COVID and that can last, you know, up to 12 weeks. Uh, and which, you know, sometimes just really reflect the kind of recovery from our bodies from all of the, 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 the strain that we have during the acute infection. When we talk about uh, post-COVID syndrome, we are talking about these people that still after three months, after 12 weeks, show these sort of medical symptoms that uh, did not exist before, that happened after the acute phase of the infection, and that cannot be really explained by other medical cases. If you tell me, for example, that someone had COVID, really big issues, for example, with their respiratory function, that they have uh, difficult, they, they had uh, permanent scars and uh, issues in uh, in their lungs. It's not that surprised that they will have breathless, breathlessness and that they will struggle uh, with, uh, you know, in being fatigued when they uh, exercise or when they have anything that uh, raises their activity levels. But the, the, the truth is about post-COVID-19 is that there's a substantial proportion of these people, of the survivors of the, of the infection, that actually are now starting to complain uh, quite often of this cognitive fatigue, of this mental fog, if you want, physical fatigue, which is something that they were not struggling before the infection, and that uh, seemed to be kind of one of the primary complaints of what we call post-COVID-19 syndrome. It, it, it seems we don't still don't know very well how frequent this is. Uh, mostly because, uh, you know, this thing of trying to understand what exactly is post-COVID-19 syndrome, what symptoms does it entail? If you know, if you do a quick search on PubMed, you're going to find many, many, many papers with probably more than 100 symptoms of people that, that, that people have reported after COVID. But the truth is that, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult to really uh, disentangle it is a part what of these symptoms, which of these symptoms might actually reflect part of this syndrome, post-COVID-19 syndrome, and which of these factors might have been, for example, related to, to, to what people experienced during the pandemic, because it was a really difficult and very stressful uh, moment for, for all of us. The very few studies where they actually had a proper control group, for example, comparing what uh, people after COVID look like as compared to people that have been hospitalized uh, with a flu, uh, and thinking for those of you that eventually don't really know that, but the flu can also be a quite severe um, disease. Uh, there seems to, 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 to exist uh, some symptoms that seem to, to persist and that uh, might be slightly uh, different in prevalence as compared to, to, to other conditions. And uh, fatigue is one of, of these conditions, but again, while we kind of, it seems that the world only uh, woken now to fatigue, uh, the, the issues with fatigue, it's something that we already know very well from from few years and eventually not even that surprising uh, in COVID because COVID is an infection. And there's a lot of infections, including viral infections, um, which kind of uh, might um, trigger some responses in our, in our bodies that uh, then lead to these post-infection syndromes, um, a lot of them uh, that are accompanied by fatigue. I'm thinking, for, ex for example, about 
Epstein-Barr, the typical Keys disease that uh, you know a lot of adolescents have. Some of the adolescents develop um, these symptoms of fatigue after infection, and developing fatigue after after infection is something that we uh, are already quite aware. What we are trying to understand now is what are the mechanisms of this fatigue, because this is something that we still could not really get to the bottom of the question yet. And whether this is really different from what we have been observing in other medical conditions uh, or not, or how, uh, you know, how specific this uh, post-COVID-19 syndrome with fatigue might, might actually be. And some of the, let's say, some of the most uh, discussed or debated mechanisms around, the, around fatigue is the idea that, uh, you know, because you have a very strong immune response uh, when you are infected by the virus, it's not implausible that uh, some of this response might be somewhere, someone somehow transmitted to your brain. And that basically what we observe with this, uh, with this uh, cognitive fatigue, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, brain fog, if you want, might actually be the reflection of a neuro ongoing neuroinflammatory process, which is not enough to give you the typical symptoms of, for example, an encephalitis, which is typically the presentation that uh, patients have when they have um, an inflammation of, of the brain. But this low-grade chronic inflammation going on for a prolonged period of time uh, might actually have a contribution. And I personally have a, a research project that is ongoing now here in London at the Institute of Psychiatry, where we are trying really to understand whether there's, uh, we find evidence, uh, we find traces of this neuroinflammatory process in people with fatigue that develop fatigue as opposed to those that did not develop fatigue but have COVID. So uh, it, it's really, I would say, it's, we are talking about research that has been done as we are talking here now. Whether the, these changes are going to be permanent or not, we cannot really tell. So a, a lot of the patients recover from the disease, which is great. Uh, a, substance, a, a percentage of patients do develop some, uh, you know, um, alterations, which are not only, uh, you know, brain fog is one of them, but um, uh, actually COVID uh, is a multi-organ disease that affects many organs, including the lungs, the kidneys, the heart, the gastrointestinal system, the nervous system, of course, is not an exception. Um, and how permanent that might or might not be, it's something that we cannot really tell because we are talking about something that started two years ago. And we still don't, still don't have uh, enough time of follow-up to really tell whether, uh, you know, this sort of, um, this sort of damages and uh, consequences of the infection might be permanent or not. What we know from the, the, the very few follow-up studies that have been, uh, that have been uh, conducted till now is that a lot of the patients, even though they struggle with some symptoms for a while, they do seem to get better over time and to, to return to, to levels of functionality. Which does not mean that, uh, you know, in some patients, uh, you might not uh, see uh, developing of symptoms that might persist for a long time. And we must be aware that, uh, you know, the symptoms that kind of make part of this post-COVID-19 syndrome, we have people reporting these sort of symptoms, some of them for quite a few months now, which should really prompt us to uh, use all of the research knowledge we accumulated till now to the, to, to, to the service of these people to try to understand uh, exactly what is it that is going on, what are the mechanisms, because once you get to the bottom of the mechanism, then you can start thinking about how can I treat this, the, the, these issues? How can I treat this brain fog? How can I treat this fatigue? 
because this is something that we are really not used to do. Even in people, for example, with ME-CSF, which is uh, kind of a very mysterious syndrome that have enticed a lot of research over the years, but the truth is that we still do not understand it very well and we never really got to the bottom of what this kind of syndrome is. We don't really know how to treat these patients very well. So there's some evidence for CPT, there's some evidence for behavioral interventions, but if you tell me it's like, okay, I have MECSF, can you give me a drug to help me with my fatigue? We, we don't really know what to prescribe. So, well, we have some ideas, but we don't really have any treatment that seem to be uh, quite uh, effective uh, for these patients. And this is example of our doing research, like the work uh, that we do here at our institute very important to, to help us to uh, face the medical challenges that, uh, that, that we just have. And I think the pandemic is a very good example of that. That was a lot. Um, but long COVID, the reason why they don't call it long COVID because you're no longer infected with COVID anymore, but people are still experiencing symptoms. Now, it's not as simple as brain fog. You can use the same methods like people. I have a buddy who hasn't smelled in a year. Like he just can't smell anything. I think the most he can smell is like sometimes his toothpaste. Um, coffee doesn't smell like anything. And I know people were trying different methods and tricks to be able to re-trigger and relearn how to smell certain things. And I think with brain fog, I think what this is from my perspective, from having COVID, you usually ask someone like if they had COVID, oh, they go, I had one bad day or two bad days or something under a week they said was rough for them. Okay. And then you have the, the other cases, like the very rare cases where people say like, they're still messed up from it. They're still like this. Now I'm not talking about long COVID. I'm talking about can't get out of bed type scenarios. Now, if we talk about the, what I think that is, I think it's like an acid trip. Now hear me out. That one day that I had that was really bad was like being high. I couldn't think. My eyes were all watery. Everything felt distorted, and I felt like this. Now, if you look at people that um, speak openly bad about cannabis, talk about how it messed their whole entire life up, the common symptoms where marijuana would have that type of effect are an actual huge mental disorders, such as bipolar disorder, such as schizophrenia, such as this. Now it can be more beneficial. There are people that use it as a therapeutic or something that helps with their disease, but there are the people that experience an opposite effect and what they would usually call like a green out or something like that. But if you look up these cases online, which I have done, because I'm one of these people that experience horrible side effects from marijuana, I just can't handle it. But it, they, they felt the way I've heard it described was that their brain is like a sponge and you just poked even more holes into that sponge and run ran water through it. They felt like their brain was like a sock that lost its elasticity. Like they just, they just never bounced back. And I talk about the resilience aspect with the people that suffer something from COVID. You might've gotten over it in a day, but your body did get reset to zero. In a sense, you got brought down to a really low, low point on that really rough day that people always talk about having. And you kind of, maybe your resiliency isn't there. You haven't bounced back a hundred percent yet. That's why certain treatment methods, like someone relearning how to smell again, they use different methods. Someone could be like, oh, I smelled my socks and my, my smell came back. And then someone like, I smelled an orange and it came back. It's going to be different. So your resiliency can actually be boosted by certain things. For instance, when I have brain fog, if I sit outside, I'm no longer infected with COVID. But if I sit under the sun for a full day, I feel great. It goes away. 
I don't know what that is. It doesn't work for every single person that has brain fog, but it's different to me. Maybe it's a sense of like your body needs different methods or different things to help bounce back, which makes an individual cure, not just one thing, but a bunch of different stuff to be able to help you out in these certain areas. It's like, well, you mentioned, um, someone with cancer, like you don't shame somebody for saying like they have cancer, but you also don't yell at them when they say like, I, if some person goes, I treated my cancer with cheese, if that worked for that person, that's a rare case. Don't, it's probably not going to work for you, but that's a rare case, but that's the same thing with this long COVID stuff. We're not really long COVID, but this post COVID stuff, people have different methods of trying. I mean, if you not saying TikTok's a good method to go by, but if you look on there, people are posting videos all the time of like, this is how I got my brain to start smelling things again. And they're trying like burning an orange and doing all these types of things. Now it might not necessarily work for you, but that's amazing that someone's willing to record that and try and help out in a sense of other people that are experiencing the same thing. And it goes back to the way that we handle with diseases as well, too. When you, there's been brain fog for way longer than COVID's been around, but it only really picked up trend when more people started experiencing what this term of brain fog was, which is when I brought back to the point of saying, then we'll eventually get a cure for brain fog when more people are focused in on it. That could help out someone who has been suffering it longer than COVID's been around. I think it's a great way to knock out two birds with one stone. It's just different where you start realizing if you're no longer infected with COVID, but you still experience brain fog, is it like a neurogenitive disease? Are you experiencing something where your brain is just in certain aspects or certain moments? Just because when I experience brain fog, I feel like my brain's just degrading away. Like it just doesn't feel like it's a hundred percent there. Like, I feel like I'm going regressing rather than progressing, you know, even with thoughts and information that I consume, I could watch a whole documentary and not understand a single word, even though I knew I was fully attentioned into it. But here's where another uh, podcast I did about the cognition aspect in time. Now, when I reached out to this person, he was talking about time travel or time exporial experience. And I thought, oh my God, we're going to learn about time travel. No, your cognition of time, time moves the same, but we all perceive it differently. And that's why there's moments where you go, man, time really went slow or time really went fast. People say it's fun, but it's also the way you're experiencing time and cognition. ADHD usually experience time going very slow. It's why you're so fast paced. But with brain fog, if that kicks in, I, I feel slowed down. I feel like the ADHD has gone away, like the one time I took Adderall. So I get into this aspect of like, there's obviously something that's not just in my head. It's something that is affecting a part of my brain that can experience time differently. And then now with that experiencing of slowing down time, this moment that feels like it's going on forever and necessarily you don't want it to go on forever, that's going to create depression. So I think you're going to get a lot more people focused into this aspect of trying to figure out what this is, because it's going to be affecting a lot more people as we're seeing. Yeah, there's there's an important point here, which is like the fact this is not only a self-report complaint. So yes, the, the people complain and uh, you know uh, do 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 raise up this this issue of the of cognitive deficits and fatigue after um, after COVID. But uh, there's a few very interesting studies uh, here in the UK from Professor Professor Hannah Amsher that uh, studied cognition um, in uh, in in people post COVID and even during the pandemic, using a very large data set um, uh, that has been that's been collected online using the the British uh, intelligence uh, challenge test where he 
could very clearly see that these cognitive deficits post-COVID are objective. So even if you put people playing tasks, doing tasks uh, that involve uh, certain aspects of cognition, such as, for example, sustained attention, um, people post-COVID, um, at least some of them will show objective deficits in these sort of tasks. And uh, you can even quantify, like uh, Adam did a very interesting exercise, uh, which was kind of trying to understand in terms of aging, how much do this decline um, of in cognition would look like in terms of years past. And what basically estimated is that uh, the, the, the decline in cognition that people show in this period post-COVID seems to be the kind of equivalent of 20 years aging, more or less. Because during aging, aging, you know, our cognition deteriorates. That's um, scary. And this kind of, uh, of alterations that uh, uh, we have been seeing in people post-COVID kind of seem to be looking like the aging process of 20 years. This said, uh, we need to be aware that, uh, you know, this is still very early research. We know that these deficits are not only self-complaint, so it's not people just complaining uh, about something that cannot be objectified. In cognitive tasks, in the period post-COVID, people do show uh, objective deficits in some of these tasks. Things seem to be to get better uh, with time, and at least seem to be related to the severity of how severe uh, your COVID was during the acute uh, phase of the disease, which is something that we do not always see. For example, in the case of fatigue, we have a lot of people that have only mild symptoms or almost no symptoms and that uh, still complain about, uh, about fatigue post-COVID, even though they did not require hospitalization or any sort of uh, ventilatory support. Uh, um, but uh, in terms of cognition, the deficits are clearly objective. And uh, this is something that we will really need to do a lot of work uh, to, to, to understand. Uh, because the truth is that, you know, you, you were mentioning about the sort of things that might work to, to you to kind of uh, uh, helping you getting over it. Uh, I, I kind of, as you, I enjoy this uh, and I appreciate this uh, spirit of uh, uh, community that uh, people very often um, build around a disease or a condition or a symptom. I think the important thing that we have to bear in mind here is that the way we treat things and the way we should intervene on people needs to be evidence-based. So, you know, what we recommend people to do to kind of overcome the, their problems need to be guided by what the evidence, the best evidence at a certain moment uh, is. And the truth, the truth is that for now, uh, we don't know exactly because this is something that is still quite uh, quite recent and a lot of research will have to come to, to, to kind of help us to understand a bit better. First of all, what should we do with these patients? And these are the decisions that will need to be informed by uh, what might the, what the mechanisms underlying these sort of cognitive deficits and other sort of issues uh, might look like in the post-COVID. You took that TikTok to getting your smell back type thing as like a, if someone jumps off a bridge, then you should jump off a bridge type example out of that, didn't you? I don't think that like if we if we sit there and say what someone puts up saying you can smell an orange and get your smell back. 
I don't think that's bad because if we're talking about we should base in what evidence is, I mean, at this point, we have no evidence on what to treat it with. So if someone finds a way that works for them, I just think it's you should try it yourself, too. Now, I wouldn't go to the extreme of saying try jumping a train or something like that to get your, you know, I wouldn't go that far. But if it's something as simple as a two second TikTok video that could possibly, I mean, we don't have evidence on it. It's the same thing as with an actual science as well, too. We don't have evidence on what cures brain fog. But I think when you realize that people can become, have this sense of community aspect when they're vulnerable, um, especially when you're sick of something, when you're tired, you, a lot of people go onto their deathbed and they say, oh, that's when they became religious. It's because they were vulnerable. They were at this moment where they turned and they were looking for anything to help them on this aspect. And I think that's an important part that shows empathy in people. I think the comfortability factor is where you, you get all the anger and stress that's on social media now. I think people are just... They, unless you see empathy out of someone or you're talking face to face with someone, which you're probably not going to say the same things you would online, you have empathy because you're there and you're, you're vulnerable. You're not away on a screen. And I think that's one thing that this pandemic really showed, not just with like lockdowns and other things, but it showed the vulnerable aspect of that. This isn't like specific to one certain person. This isn't a specific to a country. This is specific to every single person that's alive that has a cognitive ability. I mean, just being able to understand, talk, and all these factors. Everyone experiences it differently, which does bring a little bit of a disconnect in what people would rather want focused on. Like some people want their smell back. Some people just want to be able to think normal again. Um, I know people that have beaten brain fog off of doing taking some type of prescription or taking something like that i think it's just it's really interesting to see how like as much as you can say like society could be divided or as much as you hear about society being divided or the world's kind of gone this thing i'm like i i i get their their perspective but i also see like a huge benefit when everyone's kind of vulnerable and you get to see this aspect of people really take care and take charge of trying to give the best information they possibly can to people out there now you should trust good sources as well too but just the factor that like a common person that would have never you know held a door open for you starts to hold a door open for you because they realize like they're in this vulnerable spot with you which was like that during the pandemic people really cared about other people and then it kind of went a little bit darker um but I think that's that's a that's a great start that shows that like humankind and society isn't in this dark turning point. I give a huge, huge, gracious uh, leniency. I mean, just applaud too to science in general. I think the best part about science, and I've heard you say this a couple of times, where like we don't know or you don't know. I just go, someone listening to that's like, that's right, science doesn't know. I look at it like this. I'm glad you don't know because you're going to figure it out. I'm not saying you aren't going to figure it out. Obviously, that's going to happen. But I think that's the best part about it is that the, there's a transparency aspect of it. It allows people to connect again, it allows people to get in there and be like, okay, I'm not going to hold you against things you don't know. Just it's the honesty aspect. Well, knowing what we don't know is actually much more important uh, in, sci in science than uh, knowing what we know, because Why that's do we really what drives revolution, what drives exploration, you know. But let me just go back here to the point is like, yes, I totally agree with, uh, with you on the importance of these communities of support. And I think they do really showcase the best that our humanity has to offer. The problem here, and I think that's, that's something that I would really like also to take this opportunity to actually discuss 
uh, with you here and convey this message, which is like the importance of the sources and of the quality of the information. If there is something that this pandemic taught us is that it's very easy to spread misinformation especially nowadays in the days of these uh, uh, social networks. It's really, really easy to, to, to spread information that is not accurate, that is not useful, and that can actually be harmful. So, and unfortunately, when it comes to health, I think we still have a lot of work to do on what we call literacy, health literacy, educate people to be able to kind of, uh, you know, look at the information that they uh, consume and being able to kind of tease apart what is reasonable, what is not reasonable, what is evidence-based, what is not evidence-based. And that uh, if these this, uh, social media platforms do create a huge opportunity for people to come together, help each other, share tips on the, on the ways to, to overcome certain problems, they also uh, open some avenues for some misinformation that I would urge people to, to, to actually pay attention and try to uh, you know put their critical appraisal skills which episode uh, did you watch of mine that you had a problem with uh, sorry which episode of mine did you watch that you had a problem with usually when someone hits this topic it's something that they heard that i said or someone i had on that said something and the next thing you no know, no actually it wasn't it wasn't any of the of the episodes but you know let's think for example about this pandemic and all of the all of the controversy about for example the tweets from from trump and uh, with all of this uh you he know, doesn't tweet or the information of the he doesn't of have the misinformation is Yes, it's it's a Twitter, but the thing is that it's spread very easily around the world. He doesn't have Twitter, is what I'm saying, is that he's banned off Twitter and he refuses. Even yeah, I know, I know that. But this it, is a so. this is an example. This is an example of how, you know, it, it's not difficult for information to spread nowadays. And uh, you know, even though there are of course mechanisms of of, of kind of uh, in for certain sources of ensuring the quality of the information that is uh, spread. Uh, in other cases, this is not necessarily the case, which means that it's more and more it's important that all of us as citizens are capable of having some, you know, critical uh, appraisal of the information that we consume. And uh, what I would urge people to do is that if this is sometimes it's medical information is sometimes very complex and difficult to understand for someone that is, you know, um, uh, lay on this sort sort of nomenclature. If you have questions, do discuss with uh, health professionals, because normally people are very keen to try to explain and to provide as much information as they can. But uh, uh, don't engage in making decisions about what you do to your health based simply on information that you cannot understand, because that can actually be harmful. Can I have an example? I don't know. Uh, let's think, for example, about uh, cases where people said, like, you should drink uh, alcohol to uh, kill COVID. They, but, you know, the, the freaking CDC at the beginning said that cigarettes actually might keep COVID away. And then they changed it and said, actually, cigarettes would make your lungs worse and more infected to COVID. And then next thing you know, they wrote something about CB, uh, CBD gummies. I mean, I'm not saying that when we talk about misinformation, disinformation, the thing is, is that a lot of people, it not, I'm not, I've had people from the NHO or the NIH on this show. I've had people from the WHO on the show and I've had the complete opposite side as well, too. doesn't mean you need to take their things for fact, but you also need to hear the perspectives out. And I think we can all sit in agreement and understand that not, we all don't know what the fuck's going on. 
I mean, that's yes, absolutely, absolutely, Robbie. I think the important of the things that that I would like the 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 point that I wanted to make is that you know, in God we trust if we believe in God, but the others must bring data, okay? And there are some decisions that uh, you know, some things that we consume in terms of information that are might be completely neutral others not necessarily and it's kind of making this exercise of critically appraising and to in order to make informed decisions that i think it's more and more important and not everyone is really ready to um to to, to exercise um their their appraisal on when it comes to medical information and uh, uh from from that point of view I still think that it's very important that people do try to reach to the to, to the to the to the reliable sources to discuss this information, take the different perspectives that might have because, you know, especially on the issues that on the topics that we don't know, sometimes we don't have, uh, even have one single angle of the discussion, which means that uh, you need to be able to understand all of the information to balance everything out and try to understand like, okay, what, what might work for me, what might not work for me, what is the best for my situation, what is, what my, is there anything else that I could do? But this is something that you cannot really do if you do not have an understanding and you are not able to uh, critically appraise the sort of information that you are consuming. And uh, what I mean when I raise this topic is that I'm slightly, sometimes slightly concerned about certain, some of the things that I, I see really spreading, for example, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, of things that might actually lead people to explore avenues that, first of all, might be harmful and might delay uh, them to actually get to uh, uh, other solutions that might actually help and that have been shown to help uh, to help them. Um, I have and an this example. is something that is. You mentioned well, well, Twitter, so it's... I'm just I'm just curious because I'm on Twitter too, but I don't think you should be looking at Twitter as your source of light for information. I don't think anybody should. I, this, that's a cesspool of crap. Will Smith was trending on there for, I think, almost a month straight about slapping Chris Rock. If you consider that an information platform, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I can give you an example. Of course, this is going to be a bit of a controversial topic here because we are going to touch oh, a topic that is not very consensual, which is homeopathy. But let's think, for example, about like remembering a case that was not that many years ago, was like that uh, of an adolescent that ended up dying with a uh, with a tonsillitis because he was trying to treat the infection with uh, with homeopathy for uh, for for a while. This is a death that was completely preventable, you know. It's like it's a very clear infection. We have antibiotics to treat infections. These infections, you think it's like, oh, it's a tonsillitis, probably something that is not going to kill me, but it can actually kill you if left untreated. Uh, and it's a very clear example of where misinformation probably misguided these parents uh, to, to actually make the wrong decisions uh, at the crucial time points. Um, and you know, it, it's the very unfortunate, it's probably a very extreme case, but as this, we could really find a graded and nuanced uh, many other cases of where misinformation can actually delay uh, important decisions on timings that are crucial. I agree, but wouldn't we extend the same branch to some alternative medicines as well too, which some people don't accept? I mean, Steve Jobs did nothing but juice cleanses to clear his pancreatic cancer. Then on his deathbed said, I regret doing all that. Like, it's just like, 
we could draw that over there as well too. I don't I don't have anything specific against homeopathy. Okay, so let, let me I don't know what that is. That. It's like well, me neither. Uh, but what I'm saying in general is what what I'm talking about in general is about uh, interventions that are not evidence based, uh, and really try to to raise uh, and call people's attention to the importance of making decisions based on evidence and on discussion with people that can advise them based on the best practice at the moment. Um, I don't have anything specific against this or that modality. Or I think I know what you're aiming at, but you're avoiding the words of saying it. Uh, you mean alternative medicines? I, I don't have anything no, against. Uh, I, I know. meant a giant. Never mind. We won't even because I'll just get the topic off YouTube. There would be no point doing that. Um, I get what you're saying. I think it's very crucial. But when we talk about data as well, too, like there's a lot of things that you could point out that people really haven't even did studies about. And they're now doing studies about. I mean, masks were, were the biggest example of things as well, too. They were shown to be not as effective as they thought in the beginning. They've went back and forth on that as well, too. I just think that but that's, but, but that's the, Robbie, sorry to interrupt you, but, but that's science, you know, this capacity of going backwards and forwards on things that we think to be right at a certain moment that then we revise, that's yeah. science, that's how knowledge know. progresses. I know, but the, the people, the doctors in the beginning, someone that I've had on the show as well, too, speaking out about that, and that was their Twitter was banned. I mean, now that they're back on Twitter because they were proven right. Like I just get to this aspect of like, we talk about data. There wasn't data to prove that it did. There wasn't data that was proven. And if I, if you say there, there was data to show it, show me the data. Cause the WHO said the data didn't back it up. So I get into this aspect of like, I think it's very, very conscious to get your information from all sources of things. But I think when you stigmatize a topic so much that you can't talk about it or you annihilate it completely, you're not having people inform their own decisions based on the knowledge that they have. Now, I get it. I'll give you an area of like, there are probably people that aren't intelligent to make their own decisions, such as like people that ate a Tide Pod or something doing that stupid Tide Pod challenge. It's just dumb. But there are real serious things where people are speaking out about things that it might just been help them, or they might be doing their own studies, such as I've had a couple of those controversial doctors on. I think that that's information that should be looked at. And the fact that some of those controversial doctors that I've had on, the ones that have been on Joe Rogan, their studies in my town right now being done on the medications that they were talking about taking, I just get to this point of like, I get it. Like, look, I, I, I'm not about saying that this is 100% right, this is 100% this, and this is 100% this. But if you stigmatize a freaking topic so much, as much as COVID is, like if someone says that I had one bad day from COVID, they get looked at like, it's because you were vaxxed, right? Why does that even need to be discussed? The fact that they had one bad day and now they're out of the COVID thing, that should be the thing that we're looking at. We should be appraising. We shouldn't just be dismissing. But that's how this topic has been now. This topic has been where people identify with a social identity that is a mass, that is this and that is that. And that's a really, really scary time for a lot of people. There's a lot of tension right now in this world because of these topics. And I think it's because we stigmatize it so much. You say trust the science. I give science so much leniency, but I also just think that it's very, very dumb to say that we're all equal in this world when if you don't value someone else's perspective, then they're no longer your equal. And that's a really, really like, 
I mean, it's a crucial thing about who we are as people. And we lose that sometimes because we don't know a person's name. We don't see a person's face. We don't do all these things that really connect us to the person that we're might be attacking or might be appraising. I think you need to get to know people. And I think you need to understand all points of basis where they're coming from your medical degree, your whatever doctor, whatever you got, I went to school for chemical dependency. So I'm not going to sit here and lecture someone about taking drugs or anything, but I'm sure as hell going to have my perspective on it as well, too. And my perspective isn't set in stone. You shouldn't have a perspective that's set in stone. Well, all topics, all topics and all discussions have their own merits. You know, it's like, I think, it's, especially when it comes to science, science is not dogmatic. We are not here to accept things passively. We are uh, here uh, to actually, again, to, 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 to be aware, to, to know what we don't know and ask the right questions. But science most importantly, that, that... Wait, science isn't dogmatic, but academia is dogmatic. I got a thousand something episodes that I'll tell you academia is dogmatic from, and you know it, that to be true. Don't, 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 let's not go there because that would be for another episode. But <laughs> I, I, I think the important question here is that, uh, you know, things are dynamic. Things are dynamic. Knowledge is very dynamic, especially for people that do science. If you are a good scientist and if you are doing it well, keep asking questions and doubting. It's something that is, uh, that is common. And most important than that, uh, you know, all discussions are important. Discussing all sorts of topics are important. When you do not discuss, you are basically giving uh, space to people to actually uh, sometimes spread misinformation uh, because you are not giving uh, yourself the opportunity to uh, refute an argument or to actually debate whatever needs to be, to be debated. So I think it's a very, very dangerous exercise to kind of sometimes avoid certain topics or certain dimensions that we, you know, sometimes we don't really want to go there. But this discussion, this debate and public debate on the topics that matter for the society should always be a way to go. I don't see, I don't know about the debate thing. Like my show has everything. My show doesn't steer away from topics. But if we talk about society steering away from topics, if you talk about a debate, what debate has been done effectively that doesn't end in a giant argument where no information gets drawn out of it? I mean, there's no debates that happen across that ever where two people shake hands at the ending and walk away. There's no conversation that gets over. There's people that cut off each other, interrupt each other. I think a couple of times in this episode, we were kind of going back and forth in a sense as well, too. There's not a conversational aspect of it because it. I'm not at any point in this conversation trying to turn this into a debate and get into this other thing in there. But it's conversation it's talking about things and it can seem as like you're attacking like the medical field i'm not doing that at all i'm just saying that there's not when we talk about debates if we talk about any of these things someone's going to have an opinion someone's going to have something but they don't really care to hear the other side i would say which i have very strong views about really nothing I just, I just, even with politics, I consider myself politically homeless because I don't really care. <laughs> just don't have the time and the hours to worry about Biden or Trump. And that's just the states thing, maybe. But some people want you to pick a side and they don't like that you're a middle roader. And I'm just like, well, 
if I choose someone based on their political platform, does that open up the area of conversation or does it just leave me one path where I just stick with the person that I agree with the most? Like that's in, in society and Twitter, you can find that as well too. There's reasons why there's groups. There's all these types of things that we identify with as what we call tribe mentality, I would say. And then they close them off to avoid trolls or people who want to disturb that piece. And that that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. But what about the people that just want to learn and want to talk and want to understand more as well, too? I think we, we get really like we lose a lot of aspects of our human, I guess, I guess, essential being when we really, I guess, close ourselves off so much and stick with the groups that we know. I mean, I'd love there be there to be a platform out there on television that was like what they would call a debate, but was just actually just two people like if you have two friends talking about a topic that they disagree on. Eventually, it even gets a little bit heated sometimes, but they know that, you know, afterwards they hang out, get a beer or something, but sometimes they won't talk to each other for a couple of days. And I just, I don't know why that's about us as people that we have to feel that way sometimes where we just argue and then feel like we have to never talk to this person again, or just because they don't agree with us that we should never be friends. I'm sure me and you could easily go get a beer after this. It's just, that's, that's the thing is like, there's none of that you need when you are in a conversation or a debate like that, like it's on television or how a lot of these social platforms where you see someone tweet and then Twitter's the best example. You see someone tweet, someone comments on that tweet, and then it's a long, like a hundred Twitter thread to where they're up at three o'clock in the morning and they're still tweeting at this person, not getting sleep. I mean, they're not de-stressing afterwards. They're just sucked in. So then you don't have that moment where, you know, you go to bed, you wake up, you go, I got to see what this person said about me. There was no de-stress. Sleep is not de-stress. Sleep is just a time skip. You just literally wake up six or seven hours later or however long you sleep with the same baggage and same crap. You know, it's, 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 it, that's a weird way how society th thinks about things from talking to a sleep scientist. He was like, we usually just sleep to get over our problems. And I, I said that example earlier, I said, I sleep and I, my depression goes away. It's, it's not really a fix though. There's still cracks in that mirror that you have that you need to fix. And people consider sleep. Oh, cause it makes all the emotions go away that you're all boil up to a certain point and kind of boil back down in a sense. Sure. But I guarantee to you, your attention span or patience later that day is going to be still very, very short fused. You know, so a lot of the topics, I think uh, debate is extremely important, but it's also uh, important to know how to debate and uh, know how to de debate uh, really uh, implies knowing how to listen and how to talk and uh, respectfully having a, a channel of communications, which, yes, I agree with you, sometimes it's, it's a bit difficult to, to, to find because things can, can be quite, uh, quite uh, the discussion can be quite hot. This said, this does not necessarily mean that, uh, you know, when you are debating a topic, you need to end up with a conclusion or that you need to end up with a black and white uh, opinion, because a lot of the topics are so nuanced. And so, you know, there's so scope for all of these colors in between white and black that uh, we, we should just embrace, embrace sometimes this richness and really, you know, try to, 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 at least to be aware of what's out there, what the information, what are the different angles and perspectives on a certain point. We might sometimes agree a bit more or a bit less with certain arguments, but at the end of the day, 
the importance of people realizing really this richness and embracing this richness of perspectives to kind of add something to themselves. I think it's what is really important about the debate. We can switch that to academia. How many people are trying to do something that another person's trying to get their work in front of that person? Well, like I cannot really comment on that because I do not see this situation. So, Wait, uh... is is neuroscience like a safe topic? It's kind of like astronomy. Like astronomy, there's not a whole lot of like academia fighting, which is very, very refreshing. Because if you look in like other fields in academia, there's a lot of like back and forth kind of tension or like all this type of stuff where you start realizing there's some problems in it. But then if you look at like astronomy, there are some very rare. I've actually had one of like the major guys on here. His name's Avi Loeb. He had a comet that a Moa that was in space, a long pencil like thing. Now, every other academia person, he's saying it's aliens. They're all like that guy's a, and then they just onslaught him. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's one rare thing in astronomy, but most of the time it's just people trying to figure out what stuff is like dark matter is the same thing in your realm, which would be consciousness, like trying to explain what that is. I, it's, it's, a, it's an open air game. Anybody's opinion can really be what it is at this point, because th there's just not a lot of evidence on it. It's something we don't even really understand. I never even knew that the brain, I thought once brain tissue died, there's no way of bringing it back. Now, is there a thing in the brain called like white, uh, white brain matter or something like that? There's a whole other thing of tissue that can regenerate or something like that. Uh, Yes, so let me just start with your first question. So I think the neuroscience community is actually quite big with people doing a lot of different things, with people doing work like me, uh, with neuroimaging on, in humans and with patients, other people working mostly with preclinical models, but there's a, a whole range of different uh, kind of approach that people take to study neuroscience and the community is quite, uh, quite big. A good thing about the neuroscience community and for example, specifically about the neuroimaging communities, because for example, acquiring data is so expensive because we have to pay a lot of uh, money to actually use an MRI machine and acquire images of the brain. There's a lot of international projects and international collaborations which means that uh, people do speak to each other. And I think that's, that, that's a really important uh, asset uh, of doing science because collaboration sometimes is, is really key, is really a key point. About the second point of this idea of generation in the brain, I mean, I'm not a specialist on neurogenesis, but uh, this is something that's a kind of a perspective that uh, shifts over time. And it's a very good example of how sometimes something that we uh, take as true in a certain moment uh, in time or in history can just be uh, get revised with acquisition of new knowledge. And the idea that, for example, once you are born, you are uh, born with many more neurons than you actually have in your adult life, because a lot of these neurons are going to be pruned out to kind of refine the connections. But we kind of have this idea that, uh, you know, once we get to the adult uh, stage of our brains, the kind of things uh, crystallize there. You don't have uh, neurogenesis anymore. You do not produce neurons. And this is, uh, for example, a concept that we know nowadays that's completely outdated. There's many regions in the brain where people have found evidence of production of new neurons. As the heart, for example, the brain is still not as, uh, doesn't have the, the regeneration capacity that we would like it to have. And we know that, for example, cases of stroke, uh, especially when they are large, they, they can have tremendous consequences on people's life. And of course, we see some recovery, but there's, of course, a lot of people that cannot really uh, recover the functionality that, uh, that they would like. But uh, you see, 
it's a, an example as simple as that, that illustrates so well what the topic we were discussing uh, before. The need to uh, be open and to update things as new knowledge just comes in. Do they have any studies on positive emotions or positive environments influencing brain health? Like not when I'm talking about brain degeneration, but I'm talking about brain, like just regenerativeness. Um, if someone's experiencing something like maybe they're on their deathbed or something going through something horrible, that's what they found out during this pandemic was the worst thing to do was to cut people off or isolate people. It was better to have people together because the positive environment, which it makes me think a little bit about like that telepathy angle or that psychic thing where people talk about energies. Like, I hate that. I really hate when someone hovers their hand over you and says that they're healing you. I don't think it's doing jack, but when you're in a positive environment and you're having fun with friends to say that your depression doesn't go away, to say that your stress doesn't change, to say that all these things, these chemical reactions that happen, I mean, they obviously do. So I, I think when we look at that, I mean, if we look at the area of like someone who's in the hospital, like if you have a, a dying loved one or something like that, maybe not dying, but severely hurt or something. Um, I had a buddy that was in a car accident, really, really bad, got his foot ripped off and all this stuff. This was like five, six years ago. Now, when he was laying in his hospital bed, he was in a coma for like, I think almost two months and his family was constantly by his side and they were there when he woke up. I mean, to say that that didn't have an effect, I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence to really show that, I guess, but I mean, maybe. Actually, for it can be very surprising, but it's actually an area where we have quite good evidence. Social connected, social support is one of the most protective factors in mental health. And actually, uh, one area where I did my PhD uh, was actually the psychopharmacology of oxytocin, which is considered to be or thought to be a very important modulator of the social, of the social brain and of our social behavior. Um, this to say that, for example, specific on the on the neurogenesis topic that you were raising. There's, there's some studies, especially studies in rodents, that show that uh, having an enriched environment, meaning an environment where you uh, have the presence of other conspecifics, where you can actually do things, which in animals could be, for example, having this uh, wheel where you can go and run and uh, do your exercise, do seem to, 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 to protect the brain and to protect the brain by reducing inflammation, by favoring a lot of pathways that, uh, that, that are actually important to keep our brain healthy. So it, it, these sort of studies are a bit more difficult to conduct uh, in humans because it's kind of a bit more difficult to control the, the, the environment in that sense. But at least from the evidence in, uh, in animal studies, we, we have really good evidence to, to think that, uh, you know, all of these contextual factors are extremely important for our brain health. Um, and having, for example, you know, good sleep, uh, good uh, life hygiene, uh, uh, good social support. Uh, for example, one of the things that even in uh, psychological therapies you try to do with people that are socially withdrawn is try to slowly kind of try to get them reconnected because that's an extremely important part of building resilience uh, to stress and resilience to, to potential um, mental distress. When, oh, so, so, so this might be a little bit of a, a, a segue, but when it comes to like, there's a guy named Wim Hof, who's known as the Iceman. Have you ever heard of him? No. 
he conditioned like he goes in the middle of like he climbed mount everest in sandals and underwear he didn't wear a shirt or pants or anything he's known as the ice man because he can handle severe cold climates like he swims like in those like glacier waters with actual actual icebergs in the background now he trained himself to be able to do that it's not just conditioning of his body but he also speaks of it from a conditioning of his mentality and pushing out his resilience so there's is there like a whole lot of evidence that that's possible someone walking on coals or someone doing something extreme that we all know for a normal person average general public probably couldn't do is just by training your brain to resist or build up its pain tolerance there's some, uh, you know, there, there's some kind of anecdotal cases, even in the case of depression of people kind of trying to, uh, you know, see the, the impact that training, for example, swim training in very cold waters uh, might have on depressive symptoms and on building resistance to potential future relapses. But I would say that, uh, you know, for now, this is sort of anecdotal evidence. What you are kind of describing here, this idea of conditioning your body and, uh, and brain, to deal with the stress and kind of desensitize uh, the brain to the presence of chronic and continuous stressors. It's kind of something that makes a bit of sense from a biological point of view, but uh, I think I must highlight here that uh, none of this, uh, I could not make a recommendation to people go and do this based on evidence because this evidence does not exist. So the, the, the very few studies that exist uh, are actually not enough to allow us to make a very, um, you know, have a very uh, strong view on whether it might work or might not work for specific indications. But uh, there's been uh, there's been some uh, some cases and very small studies out there kind of looking into that. And one last question with brain fog, which is, with that slight little bit of inflammatory that's happening in the, or the inflammation that's happening, like kind of in the back of the head, could it be possible that's restricting like maybe oxygen from reaching the brain? Because like a lot of times, like with brain fog, especially people talk about fatigue, usually fatigue gets people lightheaded and lightheaded usually leads to passing out where I start wondering if that inflammation might be having some slight effect on someone's like spine or someone's type of maybe just blood flow to their head or something that causes them to get out of breath and maybe cause them to get this dizziness feeling in this sense. Cause it, it, it brings it. Cause I have a, uh, my mom's friend who suffers from epilepsy, which is why she can't drive. And I start wondering like how many people have brain fog that they're just tolerating. Like we say that you eventually get used to it in a sense. It's like back pain. I have back pain, but I, I feel normal, even though I know I have back pain, but I'm just used to it. I'm not, it's everyday type feeling. You eventually, then next thing you go to a chiropractor, you're like, holy crap, I feel amazing. So I go like with brain fog, if you eventually get used to it and forget that you really understand what you were like before, forget like that. It's kind of like a blind person who eventually goes blind, not just starting off blind. Eventually they forget what someone's face looks like because you can't remember after a certain amount of time or certain whatever so if you get used to brain fog and you're driving i mean how dangerous is that if you get this fatigue feeling and you don't pull over i mean you get to this point of like it's, it's like an epilepsy situation well, we are talking about a situation that can actually bring enormous uh, personal and societal, societal costs, uh, right? Because first of all, it decreases your life and limits your life massively because people that, uh, you know, really struggle with fatigue and uh, with the brain fog at some point, they cannot go to work, that they cannot really live their lives normally. And if they cannot do that, of course, all of this impacts uh, with huge societal, societal costs, especially if we, if we think that a lot of people, if there's a, a very very 
a true significant association between COVID and developing of post-COVID-19 with the amount of people that we got infected over the last years in this short period of time, we will probably will have a quite significant proportion of people um, with, uh, with, um, with these sort of symptoms, which is another factor that personally to me kind of made me a lot of sense to kind of, you know, design projects that can actually speak to this recent but uh, very timely uh, medical challenge. Uh, in relation to the inflammation and the oxygen and, well, it, it's something that we still don't know and it's something that in our study we are going to definitely look out. What we know from this, uh, from, from the epidemiological studies is that uh, you do not necessarily have to have had uh, severe respiratory distress and respiratory dysfunction with lack of oxygenation or decreasing the level of oxygen in our blood to develop this brain fog which makes us believe that it's probably, there's probably, there might be a contributing factor, but there's certainly something else because that could not explain brain fog or persistent fatigue in all individuals because not everyone with this symptom actually had respiratory dysfunction to a level that would compromise the amount of oxygen reaching the brain. But we will still look into it and we'll, uh, we, are, we, we are looking to assess the metabolism of the brain uh, more generally because we know that, for example, in cases of ME-CSF, people have found some evidence for this sort of neuroinflammatory processes, which makes sense because the condition clinically, it's kind of similar to what some people experience in more severe cases uh, with post-COVID syndrome. But we also know that these patients typically show also alterations on, in the metabolism uh, more generally, uh, even though it's kind of a bit difficult to understand exactly in which direction things go, I would say that the vast majority of studies kind of point out that there's an overall decrease in metabolism during MECSF. But uh, this also tells us that, uh, you know, there's also a lot of controversy and a lot of different results coming from different studies. Uh, most of the times, because sometimes the samples are very small, there's a lot of methodological limitations. But this is, this is a topic that is definitely interesting in the context of uh, post-COVID syndrome. Uh, mostly because of the similarities with the with the, the ME-CSF um, situation. You said that it wouldn't affect respiratory, but could it affect respiratory? You have a panic attack. It's just, the room starts closing in on you in your mind. Next, you know, you start breathing very, very fast. You start hyperventilating. That's kind of the similar thing with some aspects of uh, passing out, or I would say fatigue when it comes to brain fog as well, too. People not just being able to think about their thoughts, but then they start panicking that they're, they feel different. They feel off. And next thing you know, you have a hyperventilation situation happen where someone passes out. I'm just, this, yeah, this yeah, is just yeah. food for thought. I was just, I'm just tossing a couple of things out there. It's where my mind goes when I start thinking about these types of things. The mechanisms there are a bit different though, because, uh, you know, this sort of sensation of like, uh, of breathlessness when you are having a panic attack, it's kind of your uh, body is in alarm state. It's an extremely state of anxiety with this uh, perception of imminent death. And what happens is that your heart starts to beat very fast. You start to breathe very, very fast as well, uh, which is what we call hyperventilation, which kind of have also metabolic effects uh, with the amounts of CO in your blood and etc. So it's a bit of a different uh, thing we are talking about here. Of course, you know, if you cannot really think clearly, 
in, in a situation where you start to get frustrated, you, ask, you, ask, you start to get anxious about potentially about the future, which is like, is this thing going to go away or not? Am I going to be like this from, from this moment on? Of course, this is also a very uh, uh, a, a topic and a situation that, will, that creates a lot of anxiety um, on people. And, you know, it's pretty unfortunate for, that for us, medical community, to say, we don't really know. What we can assure people is that we are trying to do the best we can at this moment, you know, to manage the situation as good as we can based on, based on what we know. And we are trying to do as much research as we can to uh, understand this better. So it, it's a bit what I want to tell to people that are struggling with persistence fatigue is that we did not forget you. And uh, we know of your existence, we know of, your, of the challenges you are facing, and we are trying to do the best we can to understand this a bit better, so that uh, we can treat you uh, better as well. Surprisingly, like I have, so this is the one last question for you. But do you find that people get upset when you say that you don't know? Because surprisingly, I get more comfort when you say that we are aware, or we are going to look into it, or we are like you can tell me that, that we don't have evidence on it. But as soon as you tell me like you're aware, or you just hear me out on whatever that uh, issue I might raise, no matter how hypothetical it is, it's just a sense of comfort in that. I think it's just like I personally don't like these uh, ideas like we are not uh, Einsteins and we are not gods that uh, I have access to all knowledge uh, of the world right you so, just talked to me for two hours so obviously you're 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 a normal fellow yes yeah, so you know we learn as we go and uh, and first f most important than that we ask the questions when we face them you know and uh, that was one of the things that also, um, you know, led me to do uh, research, uh, even if I trained primarily uh, uh, as a medical doctor, which is like th this idea that you have many uh, challenges that you face on, a, on your everyday practice that you just realize like, uh, we don't know how to do better, but maybe if you try to explore and look at things from a different perspective, from a different angle, under a new ther theory, you might actually come up with something new. And that's that, that's a bit the, the my uh, personal attitude towards uh, towards to, towards science and towards these problems. And uh, you know, I personally, I'm always very suspicious for of people that uh, know everything and uh, do not have any questions. I think questioning yourself and questioning what is known at a certain moment is a very healthy way of uh, exercising your appraisal, critical appraisal skills. And to me, it's the only way to go forward when it comes to science and to knowledge, really. It's to keep asking questions. There's probably never going to be a moment where we will, where I will sit in this chair and I will think to myself, you know, Daniel, yes, you figure it all and uh, that's it. So that's a good way of looking at it. Thank God all I do is really ask questions as well, too. I don't have any definitive conclusions on uh, anything. But what one thing I did, I really did enjoy this podcast. It went longer than i thought it was going to go that was actually yeah me too but uh, it was an enjoyable discussion regenerative i would say maybe my, maybe my brain fog will go away i don't know um that was a dumb joke uh daniel it's been a pleasure chatting with you man seriously uh is, well, there, a place, is there a place where people can find you, you got any uh links you would put your twitter out there so there's my twitter if you look for daniel martins uh institute of psychiatry king's college london you will find i also have a website where normally i share my research on uh, different topics related to neurobiology neuroscience and psychiatry 
and uh, yeah, and the traditional roots. If you are interested in uh, in the papers that I've been writing and that I'll write in the future, you can just have a quick search on Google and probably come up with my either Google Scholar research gate and whatever. And I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for listening. Yes, please do, Robbie. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.